I would like to confess something this morning. I hate the internet. <laughs> and particularly, I hate Facebook. Now, that doesn't mean I don't look at it. I do. In fact, it's how I keep up on what's going on in the lives of the families of the church. Because I go and look at Facebook, and I can find out. And I'm not a prophet. I just read your, your posts. That's all. Years ago, I used to tease that though I do not believe in purgatory, I began to believe that God would create purgatory for Alexander Graham Bell for the invention of the telephone. Because I was convinced that the telephone, and particularly its gossipy use, probably did more damage to people's lives and to churches than any other instrument in all of the creation of mankind. Now I'm convinced it's the internet. And whoever invented the internet better look out. No, not really. But I find that for so many people, <coughs> Facebook is a place of pain and loneliness and discouragement and envy and covetousness, and insecurity, and loneliness. It is destroying young people's lives when they go on that site and they see, oh, my friends had a party, and I wasn't invited. Heck with teenagers. I know adults that read things that people post and think, why was I left out? Why does nobody read my posts? Why does nobody like what I've written? Why has my family got problems? And that family seems to have it all together. Look at all the celebrations going on. Look at how great their kids are. Look at how wonderful everything is. And in that moment, the cry of the heart the emptiness of the soul is experienced. Why am I so alone? Why does no one love me? Why do I have so many struggles? Yesterday as I was driving around, I, I uh, just kind of had some time for myself. Cindy was doing a bunch of things and so I had opportunity to be driving around and I was listening to one of the Christian radio stations. Sometimes the speech that they do, the talking on there is so banal, I, I, it drives me insane. But they began to talk about studies on Facebook and just how damaging it is. And what was so sad, they had no answer. 
there was no sense of, well, how do you deal with that? It's not just Facebook. It, it's other places. Being the pastor of a church, everybody kind of when we get together in the fellowship time, usually there's people making their way to me. They want to, what Howie Hendricks calls, glorifying the worm. Good job, pastor. Good job. But I can remember when I wasn't a pastor and was just a church member. Sometimes standing in the foyer and watching people gather together. And I was there by myself. And thinking, does anybody care? Does anybody care about my life? And feeling sometimes a profound sense of loneliness. Sometimes when I sit down on a Thursday is the day I do the putting together, not so much the study, but the putting together of a message. And I sit there in my office and think, I am so inadequate for this. And everything inside of me at times is wants to get up and run and say, how, Lord, how can I be the one that takes your word and tries to make it meaningful? And ultimately, that's not my task. It's the spirits. But What do we do at those times? Every one of you know what I'm talking about. Every one of you know that emptiness, the the cry of the soul. It says, I am so hungry. I am so thirsty. What do I do? And I love the passage that Dave read this morning. Because in that passage is a response to that struggle. In that passage is the means by which to address that emptiness, that hunger, that thirst doesn't mean we don't feel it. It doesn't mean that it may not continue in its emotional impact. But what it means is it doesn't destroy me in my thinking. It doesn't crush me. It doesn't cause me to want to say, why bother? Isaiah has been talking to us about the Messiah. I love the video because it's very much Isaiah. It's everything we have been talking about with the song of the suffering servant as we looked at Isaiah chapter 42 and we looked at Isaiah chapter 49 and we looked at Isaiah chapter 50. And now we're looking, last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. As this servant is the one that comes and he's the example of how to live without the constriction of the serpent within our hearts. But even more, he's the one who was crushed for our sins and iniquities, who was mortally pierced. For our transgressions. 
Not only he is, is he our example, but he is our salvation. He is the new covenant and the new relationship that we have with God. And as Isaiah is finishing that, he he comes to Isaiah chapter 54, which we don't have time in our series to look at, but he talks about that celebration, that rejoicing. He comes to Jerusalem, which is a representation of the people of God, and he said, there is glory, there is hope, there is fullness, there is richness that will come when God makes it all right. The eschatological hope, the the hope at the end when there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. And we will no longer live by faith, we will live by sight. So Isaiah chapter 54, and in fact, The next section we get into Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah chapter 56 through 66, celebrates that, particularly as you get to the end of the chapters. But when you come to Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah says, how do you live in between? How do you live in between the fact that the suffering servant has accomplished what God sent him to do. And we know we can look back on Christ. We're not looking forward to the promise. We're looking back on the event and we know that Christ died. But even more than that, he's alive. And all of the promises and all of the declarations and all the things that Jesus said are true. And do you know how we know? Because he performed the greatest act of triumph. He overcame death. As the Pharisees and Sadducees were looking at Jesus on the cross, they said, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe. He did better. He nullified the impact of the cross and came back from the dead. Not to die again like Lazarus. I'm so glad I don't have to face death once. Poor Lazarus and his family had to do it twice. But he came back for eternity and says, all that I promised is true. Now, when we come to Isaiah chapter 55, the translators in the NIV and many of the other translations begin Isaiah 55 with this word, come. And that's a good translation. It's a great translation. But the word is actually this. Woe. It's usually used in judgment, and it's not judgment here. But there's a sense of sadness. And the sadness is this. All 
all of this has been accomplished. All of this has been made for us. The new covenant is ours to enjoy in its fullness, in its richness. Our relationship with God has been restored. We've been redeemed from our sin. The power of the serpent to constrict our hearts has been done away with. So why does Isaiah say woe? Because he looks into your heart and he looks into mine and with sadness he says, if that's all true, then why aren't we living it? Then why isn't it the reality of our lives? And as Isaiah comes to us in Isaiah chapter 55, He comes with the promise and the reality that our hungry and thirsty souls can know contentment. In Isaiah chapter 55, in the first nine verses, I wish we had time to look at all of them. We don't. But God proclaims this, or Isaiah proclaims this, that God provides the sole means of enjoying true contentment in our souls. In Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah comes to that teenage young person and says, there's a way to deal with the emptiness you feel as you read that post. To the family that wasn't invited, God says there's a way to deal with the emptiness you feel. To the person that just was defeated again by that sin, it feels that shame in being unlovable. God says there's a way to deal with that emptiness. but only one. And all the other ways that we try will eventually lead to greater emptiness. He begins to talk about that in Isaiah 55 when he begins there and proclaims, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And all of you who have money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. And he wants us to know that he's not talking about the hunger and thirst that we feel when you begin to smell the popcorn. They're popping sometimes for the fellowship time. Or a couple weeks ago, they made something in the oven that just permeated the whole auditorium. It's like, oh. And in that moment, I felt the hunger (laughs) but not of my soul (laughs) he proclaims there the anniversary (laughs) listen listen to me 
in the midst of that woe, in the midst of the, the, the ways that bring emptiness, he says, listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul, your, your nephish, the, the wholeness of who you are, will delight in the fat. Now, I know, we now understand that fat, you shouldn't really eat a whole lot of that stuff. But that's because we have so much food, we don't know what to do with it. Back at this time, the primary means of sustenance, or sustenance, the best form of sustenance was the fat. They had few calories. And so they needed those calories. And it was the richest affair. And he says, come and your soul will delight in that, that stuff that is wonderful. And your soul, in verse 3, will live. You see, what Isaiah is doing here is he's saying, we are invited to enjoy that which alone satisfies the emptiness, not of our stomach, not of the erps. You know what the erps are? That's when your belly goes, erp. Not that. But when your soul says, I'm lonely, I'm useless, I'm worthless, no one can love me. See, the first thing that God wants us to understand is that in our soul, in our being, in who we are as created creatures, there is a hunger and thirst that only God can satisfy I love that the video began in the Garden of Eden because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve knew no hunger and knew no, knew no thirst of their soul. Why? Because they had a perfect relationship with God. And so as God filled them, they were able to take the fullness of their relationship with God and pour it into one another. And Adam's relationship with Eve and Eve's relationship with Adam was not to use their spouse to fill the emptiness. Rather, it was the the place to pour out the fullness that God had brought into the life of another. God's word says that in a number of different places, particularly in the Old Testament. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see, the emptiness that that teenager feels on that Facebook page, the emptiness you feel when you're not invited, the emptiness that we feel when our best friend turns away from us, the emptiness we feel when our spouse lets us down, the emptiness that we feel when we fail in our struggle with sin, the emptiness that we feel when we've finally made the pinnacle of our career. And like Swindoll used to talk about, the, the moan of the top dog. When you hit the top and realize there's nothing left. What I'm really thirsting for, what I'm really hungry for, is my intimacy with God and the desire for God to work in my life. Psalm 63, verse 1 and verse 5, and there's verses in between, but it says basically the same thing. Oh God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And if I come to you, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Actually, the fat and the marrow. And I will respond with singing lips, mouth that praises you. There is within us a longing to have that intimacy with God restored and renewed. But the problem is, the serpent invaded the garden and strangulated our heart. Because we no longer have that intimacy with God, we experience what we were never created to experience. The emptiness of distance from our Creator. The failure to know perfect love. The failure to know full acceptance. The failure to know that our lives really have purpose and meaning in our faithful service of God. So as Isaiah is writing, he says, everyone who's thirsty, everyone who's hungry, that would be us. Come buy wine and milk without money. It costs nothing to come to God. God doesn't say, do this, and then I'll respond. Do that, and then you'll get it. God says, come to me. But the problem is, instead of coming to God, because of our estrangement, It leads us to seek satisfaction in what cannot satisfy. In the midst of the loneliness, I try to find the right friend or maybe I respond back in revenge. In the midst of the sense of inadequacy and overwhelmingness, I say really what I'm going to do is deaden the pain. And so this is why that woe is there. This is why Isaiah says, why? Why do we do this? He says, why do we spend money on what is not bread? Why do we spend our labor on what just doesn't satisfy? That accomplishment you think will bring fullness to life. Yes, for a moment. But then what do you do afterwards? That person that you think will, will just create in you a sense of being loved and accepted for the rest of your life and suddenly they abandon you. That thing you bought that you thought, if I just had that, if I just made that much, and you get there, and it's just not enough. I remember after the Eagles won the Super Bowl in the first game the next season what was the first question in your mind can they repeat last year that mean a thing 
just emptiness. Solomon says, it's vanity of vanities. And we found that to be true. You see, Jeremiah says it this way. My people have committed two sins. First, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. They don't come to me. They don't come to me in the midst of of the accomplishment and say, Lord, this feels great, but I'm just so glad that I can serve you faithfully and know that even though whatever I've accomplished here may someday disappear, I know that eternally it is significant to you and you will use it for an eternal purpose. When I see that post on Facebook to say, you know what, Lord, my friend just hurt me terribly. But thank you that you love me perfectly. You know me completely. You know everything about me. And yet you still want me. When the job comes to an end, and they say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. But thank you, Lord, that I can trust you and that you will be my adequacy. We forsake that. And then we dig broken cisterns that can handle no water. When we feel empty, when we feel inadequate, when we feel abandoned, when we feel lonely, I particularly like a bowl of chips and dip. Or maybe I go out running. Or maybe I seek revenge. Or maybe I say, why bother in distance and isolation? And we seek satisfaction in what cannot satisfy. But God says all the way through, he says, come to me and find satisfaction for your soul. Find the love you long for. Find the significance you long for. Find the acceptance you long for. Find the purpose that you long for. Come. Buy and eat. You don't even have to spend your own money. We were talking about getting presents from our kids at Christmas. Oh, thank you for the gift that I just bought. Jesus says, I'll give you that. I'll give you what is needed. I've already paid it. Come and find. Jesus does that very thing in John chapter 7 as they're gathering together for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And as they gathered at the very last day, the priest would hold up a cup and he'd talk about drinking. And in the midst of that, Jesus comes and says, you know what, if you're thirsty, he's talking about the soul. Or you could put if you're hungry, but in this context, it was the cup. Let him come to me and drink. 
Because whoever believes in me, the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within. But you know what? We don't believe that. We don't. I don't. In the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the loneliness, in the midst of the inadequacy, in the midst of the rejection, in the midst of the isolation, I don't believe that in my relationship with the Lord is the fullness and hope that I long for. And so I run everywhere else to try to find it. Isaiah says, don't do that. Let me show you another way. So as he's completing this section and as he's finishing this, He says, let me show you how to enjoy what is already yours if you know Christ as your Savior. If you are a part of this everlasting covenant, this everlasting relationship, which God provided through the Messiah, through the death of the one who died for my sins, for my infirmities, for my transgressions. If you will simply accept what he's already accomplished, I will give you this covenant, this relationship that will be yours forever. But you don't have to wait till then. You can appropriate it now. And so Isaiah there in Isaiah chapter 55, he comes and he says with these imperatives and over and over again, there are imperatives through this passage, this do this. There's four imperatives. He says, seek the Lord. Call on him. Forsake the normal ways. And turn to him. You see, it is only by appropriating our covenant relationship with God that we can find the wholeness of our soul that helps us to remain faithful until we see it face to face. And it's through those four imperatives that we accomplish that. They're not a list to check off, but they're There are ways to begin to think about our lives and begin to think through those struggles and difficulties. If you're feeling that loneliness right now, Isaiah says, come. Call on the Lord. Seek him. Forsake. Find this that's found in God. If you feel that inadequacy to walk through that process, He begins by saying we need to acknowledge the true personal wholeness that is found in God alone. When he comes there and he says the very first thing to do in the midst of this struggle is to seek the Lord. To go to him. 
to understand and remember that the wholeness and fullness that I long for my soul, for my being, is already mine. God has already given it to me. When I read the post on Facebook, what's the first thing that goes through my mind? Isaiah says, let the first thing that goes through your mind when you feel that hurt, when you feel that shame, when you feel that guilt, when you feel that loneliness, when you feel that inadequacy, when you feel that rejection, when you feel that isolation, let the first thing that goes through your mind is to seek the Lord and remember what it is that he has provided. In that moment, to remember that if I'm not invited to the party, Isaiah says, God comes to me and says, come. They may not want you, but I do. If no one shows up at your party, remember, the Lord says, I stand at the door. I'm always here knocking. When that friend abandons you, when that spouse abuses you, and I don't mean, hey, listen, physical and sexual abuse, not only do you do this, you also get out. But that's a whole different topic. But when that that spouse lets you down, at that moment to say there is nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. When my job feels worthless, to remember that anything I do for the glory of God will be eternally significant. God says, that's the first place to go. Seek. Seek the Lord. And then he says, not only that, but at that very moment, we appropriate the vision. I mean, a provision he has already provided. And that is, we call on him. We say, God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your acceptance. Thank you for the purpose. Thank you for all that you provided me in my relationship with you. Yes, right now I feel hurt. Right now I feel lonely. Right now I feel unwanted. But thank you that though that feeling is there, the reality is not. And I don't need to believe the lie that the hurt is screaming at me. God, I am loved. God, my life has purpose. God, I am accepted. God, you began a work in me that you will continue until the day that I see you face to face. And though I'm struggling with sin right now, you will tell me as I choose to be faithful through repentance and moving in new ways that I am your child. When my parents let me down, when my, whoever it might be. And remember that God is the one that says, I am the husband to the widow and the father to the orphan. We seek him first and then we call, we remember, we call out to the Lord. But there's another thing we need to do. 
And that is we need to forsake. We need to reject the old ways which always lead to emptiness. How do you usually respond in those situations? Besides a bowl of potato chips and dip, I particularly like rage. I find that rage tends to control people very well. I tended to learn, I learned when I was younger, that if I got really angry, people sort of responded the way that I wanted them to. I found out that maybe things don't change, but at least I have a sense of revenge. Oh, and that felt so good for a little while. God says you need to forsake the old patterns. At that moment when you want to strike out in revenge to your friend and watch what I'm going to post. Just say, God, that's not faithful. I'm not going to pursue those things that will just leave me empty. When that moment I want to isolate and said, I'm never going to have a friend again. And say, God, that's not what you call me to do. I reject the old ways. I reject the old idols. In his book on counterfeit gods, Keller talks about the fact that the problem with idols is you can't just remove them. You have to replace them with something else. And so in the midst of those struggles, I need to say, Lord, I'm not going to run to those old idols. They just leave me empty. But rather what I'm going to do, and this is where Isaiah sums it up. He says, instead, I'm going to turn to the Lord and find the mercy and the acceptance and the pardon and the love I desperately want. I'll allow him to do his way in my life. And the last thing is we we pursue choices that demonstrate our trust in God's provision. Maybe it means to that post, I get with my friend later on and say, I was really hurt by that. Knowing that if they even reject me again, I can trust in the Lord anew. When I find the emptiness not to run to the bowl of potato chips or the, or the bowl of ice cream or the, or the alcohol or the pornography or the whatever it might be we use to fill up the emptiness. But say, God, in this moment I'm going to trust you. It doesn't mean that at, at that moment I may not still feel lonely or I may not still feel empty, but I understand that wholeness is mine and I don't need to believe the lie. And I choose to live on the basis of what God proclaims and I trust him. You see, what Isaiah wrote almost 2,800 years ago is still true today. When our souls feel its hunger and thirst, why do we go to things that don't satisfy? 
Instead, let us remember the fullness that is ours in God. Let us come to him appropriating what is ours. And then let us turn in directions that demonstrate that truth. When I reach out to my friend on Facebook and say, I will still stay in relationship. I will still love you. I can forgive you. Because of the wholeness that is mine in my relationship with the Lord. It begins with that relationship. And the first question is, are you a part of that eternal covenant? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you accepted what he has accomplished in order that your relationship with God can be all that God longs for it to be? That that potential is there. And the question then becomes, if I'm a part of that covenant, am I appropriating it day by day, hour by hour, sometimes moment by moment, until it's no longer by faith, but we will see him in all of his fullness. Father, thank you for the truth we find in Isaiah. Thank you that we can walk in you and with you. Father, we always invite any who may not know have a certainty of their relationship to come and speak to somebody to know that they can enjoy that relationship and how to have that relationship for eternity. Father, those of us who proclaim our involvement in that covenant, may we live it out day by day. May we seek, may we call, may we forsake, and may we find all in our relationship with you. And we pray it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.